have been looking at some Messianic prophecies. We will not necessarily focus on Messianic prophecies tonight, but uh, we do want to do an overview of the book of Malachi. So we will be in the very last book of the Old Testament. We have taken some time to look at Zechariah the last two weeks, and Zechariah Haggai preaching at the return, during the, the return, the period of return from the Babylonian exile, and Cyrus having given that decree for Israel to return, 538 B.C., and 50,000 Jews along with Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest, they came and they began to rebuild Jerusalem, and then they let the temple uh, lie at rest. They didn't finish the temple. They went back home, began to build their homes. Of course, they had faced some opposition, so they were not following through with the, the building of the temple. And then God sent Haggai and Zechariah to preach, and the temple was rebuilt. Well, now we're looking about 100 years from the time of Zechariah and Malachi, sorry, I'm sorry, Haggai and Zechariah, when they first started preaching. We're about 100 years now. So the temple was finished 516 B.C. And we are now looking at a period of time here that, again, is going to overlap. Malachi's ministry is going to overlap with Zechariah and Haggai and a little bit with Jeremiah who preached obviously before the exile and his ministry continued for a little while after the exile. But Malachi will overlap, his ministry will overlap with Zechariah and Haggai just, just a little bit more toward the tail end as their ministry is finishing up and now some hundred years after the beginning of Haggai and Zechariah's ministry God then sends Malachi to preach. So let's look at some background and some themes. We see in Malachi 1, in verse number 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So here is a burden again. Here's an oracle. It's an oracle. The word burden has to do with an oracle but it has to do with an oracle that carries with it a weight, a burden. Okay, We can give an order at work or around the house. We can, in the classroom, various places, we can give an order. And they can be just simple things. Not really that heavy, not really that big of a deal. Just something simple. This is not the burden here. This is not that kind of an oracle. This is a weighty, serious, heavy oracle. Revelation. That's why the word burden is used by the King James translators. Because this declaration, this oracle, this revelation comes with weight. It comes with a heavy burden. So Malachi, who is he? We don't know, again, a whole lot about him. We can gain some information internally from the four chapters. We know some from historical, extra-biblical, historical information in Jewish tradition. But there isn't a whole lot that we know about Malachi. Now, 
His name means my messenger or the Lord's messenger. And we know that he had a message from the Lord. He is the last of the writing prophets of the Old Testament. There were obviously other prophets. Some were not given the privilege, the responsibility of writing a book of the Bible. Uh, There were many prophets that did not have that particular privilege. But Malachi did have the privilege of penning the revelation of God, the inspired word of God. And he had a message. Zechariah, what was his theme as he concluded his book? We talked about Zechariah being the second most, what? What was the uh, fact about Zechariah that we talked about? Isaiah had the most of this, Zechariah had the second most. I never did get the number, but what was Zechariah's primary emphasis? Exactly. Exactly. The, the temple, the focus on the temple and rebuilding the temple, but specifically the Messiah. He was declaring that the Messiah would come and he would be in this temple. He would walk in this temple. And so the second most Messianic prophecies of all the Old Testament books comes out of the book of Zechariah. Well, Malachi does have a Messianic prophecy in Malachi 4 and verse number 2. I went through that in Sunday school a few weeks ago, and that's the day spring. And that's a prophecy regarding a title, a specific title for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Day spring, I even touched on that Sunday morning. My message on the light of Christmas, he would be the greatest day that would ever dawn. And Malachi refers to day spring, and then uh, he is uh, referred to, or that title is referred to in uh, Luke chapter 1. But Malachi is not so much, he's not doing as much messianic uh, prophesying as he is declaring the fact that if they don't wake up from their slumber, if they don't wake up from their sin that is already beginning to take over, that's already crept in, here it is, a hundred years, roughly, from the time that Zechariah and Haggai began preaching They are already beginning to relapse into the sins that had caused them to go into exile. So, here is Malachi coming on the scene, beginning to preach, beginning to prophesy. He has seen the temple at at least, uh, we don't know exactly how old he is, but at least uh, at some part of his ministry and. In, in growing up days, at least, he has seen the temple. It has functioned now for some time, having been rebuilt, finished in 516. It is now functioning. But sadly, what is beginning to happen is it's becoming ritualistic. It's becoming dutiful. It's just uh, formalistic. There's a lack of a heart. There's a lack of an inward compliance 
Well, there's an outward going through the motions, but like we have talked about with the church at Ephesus, there has been a loss of their first love. And again, we are seeing this pattern over and over. And does it not remind us of ourselves, this prone to wander? We are so desperately in need of regular, consistent reminders. And can I say regular and consistent chastenings and regular and consistent judgments because we are so prone to wander. Our hearts get so distracted and so defiled so quickly and so easily. Malachi was traditionally known as a member of the great synagogue, which eventually would become the Sanhedrin in the New Testament. He is writing probably around 433 to 424. Nehemiah had come back. So we have the first return, 538, 536. Cyrus's decree, 50,000 Jews, Zerubbabel, Joshua. They begin to build Jerusalem, rebuild, rebuild Jerusalem, and they begin to rebuild the temple, and then they face some opposition. The temple does not get completed. Haggai, Zechariah preach, focus on their spiritual priorities, focus on the temple, on the Messiah. Zechariah's message is the Messiah is coming. And he will one day be in this temple. Well, now, 516, the temple is done. So here we are seeing 50, 60 plus years of the temple worship functioning. Nehemiah has come 445, 445 B.C. Nehemiah comes. I believe Ezra came 458 B.C. So Nehemiah has come. He has spent 12 years. What was Nehemiah's primary responsibility? To build what? The walls. The walls of Jerusalem. So Nehemiah is responsible for building the wall. Did he face opposition? Yeah, Sam Ballot, Tobiah. They, Nehemiah was a good Second Amendment guy, wasn't he? Right? He had a weapon in one hand and a, and a tool in the other, right? And he told them there had to be a group that would guard and a group that would build. Because there was such opposition. So they are working on the walls. They, fill, they finish the walls. Nehemiah goes back to Persia for about 10 to 12 years. And it's probably during that time that Malachi begins to preach. Okay, So we see this pattern. God brings to his people leadership often in the form of preaching and prophecy and priests. We see this pattern. God wants his people to be instructed according to his word. We see this consistently throughout scripture into the church age. God had Zerubbabel, he had Joshua, he brings Ezra, who was a priest and a prophet. He brings Nehemiah, who was kind of more of a businessman, but he was still a godly leader, and he was influential along with Ezra. Ezra would get up, and he would preach, and he would read the scripture. And we see this. Haggai, Zechariah come when God's people are not prioritizing 
God and not having the right spiritual priorities. The temple is lying waste. He sends preachers. He sends men to instruct his people in the word. And we see this pattern. So complacency and corruption have set in. 516, temple is done. 433, you have Nehemiah going back to Persia. He has been used of God in a great way. Ezra with the preaching and the reading of the scripture. But there's clearly, by the time Malachi is preaching, by the time his ministry comes full scale, there is a lot of corruption, a lot of complacency, a lot of apathy, a lot of unbiblical practices, including unbiblical marriages to foreign wives. Lack of acceptable tithing and gross injustices among the people. These are three specific areas. There are others, but three specific areas. Don't we see again it, it, this pattern? What does Satan attack? The family and the church. Do we not see that over and over? His tactics, his strategy really hasn't changed all that much. He uses, I know the names and the faces change, the technology changes, the modes of operation maybe change a little bit, but the strategy remains the same. He is after the family, he is after the church. Ultimately, when the Speaker of the House gets chastised by the liberal news media simply because he wants to be a good father, a good husband, and have a life of integrity, and major media news organizations treat him as if he is some sort of green alien life form from some mysterious planet when he emphasizes purity and integrity and morality and honesty. I thought that, the, I thought that character was important. But there's this constant shift, right, in what true character is now. So Morality, purity, honesty, those are characteristics, that's character that should be a part of everybody's life. But it's not produced through immorality and cheating and lying and various other kinds of evil and perversions. But instead, what does the world do? The world redefines so what does the world do? The world comes along and says, true heroic character is when a gold medal winning Olympian comes out as a woman. That's true heroic champion behavior, moral character. That's baloney. That's garbage. That's sewage. That's lies. Lies that Jesus is a Palestinian Arab 
Jesus is an Asian? Yeah, Lutheran, a liberal Lutheran priest just made a, I'm not even going to call it a sermon, a speech. Liberal Lutheran pastor, priest, whatever, gives a speech and calls Jesus a Palestinian Arab or an Asian. And so these lies are circulating. Is it not explicitly clear that Jesus is a Jew? Does it not clearly state in Scripture that he will rule and reign on the throne of David for all eternity? The lies, the attacks, it just keeps coming. He preached against their hard-heartedness, their coldness, in just a short amount of time. Since they had returned from the exile, since the temple had been rebuilt, even Nehemiah was burdened. And if you read through the book of Nehemiah, you see a man who's passionate for the things of God. And he's burdened for the people, coming along in Nehemiah 13 and dealing with these unbiblical marriages. Dealing with their lack of giving, their lack of tithe, their lack of spiritual priorities and desire. I know it wasn't for the church at that time, but for the temple. And then even he was involved as... Uh, we see Malachi preaching. He was concerned about the injustices among the people. So then we see repeated reminders in this book. Chapter 2 and verse number 5 is another reminder about the covenant. My covenant was with him of life and peace. That's 2.5. 2.4. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. We drop down to verse number 8 of chapter 2. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi. Chapter 2 and verse 10. Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of of our fathers. Verse 14. Yet ye say, Wherefore? Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. What does he bring up in Malachi 2? He brings up the covenant relationship, and what's the example he gives in Malachi 2? What's the example that he gives of a covenant relationship? Marriage. And he deals with divorce. He, he talks about that uh, later on in, in this passage. He emphasized in his preaching that God wants the heart. Inward compliance. Not just outward appearance of duty and ritual. Does the outward matter? Yes. Does obedience matter? Yes. But the inward is the most important. They were going through the motions of temple worship, of the feasts. They were going through the motions, the rituals, the formalities. Obviously, there was disobedience outwardly in some areas. But what Malachi was really trying to hit home is your outward can appear for at least a little while, at least temporarily, to look okay, to look good. 
But eventually, if it's corrupt on the inside, what's going to happen? It's going to rot on the outside. You can't have a bad root system in disease inside the trunk and the stem of the plant, the tree, and it produce good fruit and healthy branches. Eventually, it's going to fall off, fall over, collapse, rot, and it'll show from the inside out. I've talked about some trees around our house and a big, big tree across that had to be taken down completely by the doctor's office, the business building across the, the street there because it had rotted out from the inside. At first it was one big branch and then it was basically the majority of the tree, the trunk of the tree. And they eventually just sawed it down to because it came over during a storm and eventually they just sawed it down to the, the, the stump. And I took Mickey over there and we went on a walk and we went through the, and Mickey was scared to death of that big tree stump. It was this rotten mess and he got down low and he was, and I had to walk him up there and he sniffed around and finally I was like, it's okay. But I wanted to see it myself and I'm just this way, I, I, I'm, I'm a nerd I guess about these kinds of things. So I wanted to see the rings on the trees. I wanted to go in, I wanted to see, and eventually you go to the center, and you see all these rings on the outward, and then you get to the center, and all of a sudden you start to see where there's, I don't know if it was a disease or what, but you get toward the center of that stump, and there's, there's rot. No wonder the branch, and then eventually the whole tree basically came down. Uh, there's a tree that came down in our, the woods on our property behind our house. I went down to look and see what was the damage and what had happened. There was no root system deep into the soil. I don't know if it just didn't take well to that particular soil. It was right on the hill as it began to go up on the, the incline. But that tree had basically no root system. It looked healthy, but it basically had no foundation. And just a few little roots coming up. No wonder that thing fell over. It had nothing to really hold it solid. And that's what Malachi is concerned about. There's all this ritual, there's this formality, there's all of this going through the motions, but he's saying there's some hard-heartedness, there's some disobedience, there's some uh, heart issues here that are going to result in judgment once again. If he did it before, if God had to bring judgment before, he will do it again. And what does eventually happen to Israel during the intertestamental period? Who comes along? Isn't it the Romans, right? And you have the Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabean Revolt and Hanukkah comes out of that. And they had some uh, victory, some peace, but a lot more turmoil. Again, the warning um, of their, their lack of a heart for the Lord. It's interesting in the literary um, aspects of the book, there's a Q&A method. Even Malachi will kind of take on the role of lawyer Wish we had time to look at all of these verses. But then he calls them out for six different sins. Sorry, I didn't get my outline put into the, the bulletin tonight. I, I didn't get it copied over, and so there's no blanks to fill in. But he deals with six different sins over the course of the book. He deals with the fact that they rejected God's love. He's already in the very first chapter dealing with this. He says in verse 2, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Is the problem that God hasn't loved us enough? No. 
Is the problem because God decided he was going to go on vacation, put an answering service? He was going to sit in his rocking chair and kick up his feet and have a cup of hot chocolate and let us kind of do our own thing? No, the problem isn't God. The problem is us. The problem is we have gotten away from the Lord. The problem is we have left him. We have become cold and hard-hearted and calloused. And we've lost our, our passion for him. And we have not drawn nigh to him. We're the ones that have gotten away from him. He will draw nigh to us, but we must draw nigh to him. They have, they have left their first love, again, using the illustration of, of Ephesus in Revelation. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Adam saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness. And the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever, and your eyes shall see, and ye shall see, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. This is just like people today. Who are they trying to blame? Trying to blame the Lord. They're, they're trying to blame shift. Trying to say, well, the problem is the Lord. God is saying, I've loved you. You have not loved me. We can get into the whole Esau have I hated, Jacob have I loved. I'm not trying to get into all of, all of the, the theology of that. But it, it's, it's, it's really a comparative term. The fact that Esau sold his birthright, rejected the Lord, resulted in specific kinds of judgment, specific kinds of influence on his generations because Esau chose Canaanite women and foreign women and series of decisions that ultimately influenced and impacted. And we can get into the whole love and hate thing, but I'm not uh, trying to get into a big theological discussion about that it's again it's a comparative term but the point is they're trying to say it's God's fault and isn't that what we hear today all this evil in the world it's God's fault and people reject God it's not God's fault it's us it's our sin God has sent his son Jesus Christ he has provided salvation he has shown his mercy. He has been loving kind. He has shown his loving kindness. He has been patient with us and merciful with us. He is gracious to us. It's man that rejects. We could talk about general revelation and special revelation. We don't have time to, to deal with all that, but we could go on to the rest of this chapter and into chapter two and see how they denied him the honor that he deserves trying to seek their own glory. They rebelled against his faithfulness. And what did they do in chapter 2, 17 verses, or chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3 and verse 6? They redefined God's righteousness. Same tactic today, right? Redefining the terms. Coming up with our own man-made standard of righteousness, of right and wrong. Every person has his or her own truth. That we know that that only goes one way, right? It only works. Because there are certain people they don't want to live out their truth, right? We know it's a whole word game, definition game. It's a rejection of God's truth, is ultimately what it is. 
And that's part of what he's calling them out for is, again, trying to blame God, trying to redefine truth, trying to redefine the terms, ultimately trying to redefine the very righteousness of God. We talked about the issue of divorce there in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, and how God hates divorce. They have done, they have dealt treacherously against God. They have left, they have committed, they have left God, they have committed the spiritual adultery. And then in chapter 3, also, there's the robbing God of tithe. They have not been giving. And then in chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, they despise God's grace. Chapter 3 and verse 13, Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? There it is again. What? What, what, what have we done? It's like, it reminds me of that kid that sits in the office, and I would go through the office, or I'd come out of my office, and there'd be the kids at the, the main office at the seats there, and I would say, so how, how come you're here? I don't know. So the teacher just picked your name random out of a hat and decided to send you to the office. I don't know. So you didn't say or do anything that could have caused the teacher to send you to the office. I don't know. <laughs> Come to my office. <laughs> and I start down the 20 questions. And they usually would try to argue their way out. It's, it's the same attitude that we see here. Ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? What good does it do to follow God's ways? It doesn't work well for me. It's that same kind of arrogant, proud, rebellious attitude. It's this spirit that we see even in the world today. And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. And there's even among the Jews saying, see, the wicked are getting away with everything and you're not a God of justice. And how come it looks like they're... And they're blaming God when they have hearts of rebellion. They're not living for God. They're not being obedient. They've despised God's grace. I wish we could take some more time. We're doing the 747 flyover version. We're, we're uh, down to our last minute or two here. But in the outline of this book, we see the denunciation of Israel's sins and the declaration of Israel's judgment and blessing. But let's end, let's conclude in chapter 4, where Malachi prophesies of the coming of the Lord. And there is a near fulfillment in the first coming, the incarnation of Christ, but there is a full and a far fulfillment looking ahead to the second coming and into the millennial kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. For behold, the day cometh. That shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. There it is. There's the judgment of God and his coming, second coming of Christ. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves. Of the stall. There's that title prophecy that's referred to in Luke 1, Dayspring, Son of Righteousness. 
And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Who is that Elijah the prophet? Who is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah? That's John the Baptist. He's referenced in Malachi 3 as the messenger, who who will be the forerunner, who will be announcing the, the coming of the Lord. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And don't we see Satan constantly trying to divide homes? trying to divide the fathers and the mothers from their children, and now literally laws in the United States that are trying to take the kids from their parents. It's it's unbelievable. Unbelievable, the things that are going on in the name of progress, right? But we're out of time. Malachi is a wonderful book. I hope we have time maybe to sit down and maybe in your yearly Bible reading, you've read through the book of Malachi, or maybe it's on your plan for next year, but a wonderful book. Uh, thank you for being here. I know, again, we, we're not as many tonight, but uh, it's been good to be together, and hope we can enjoy some fellowship, and we'll continue to pray for one another, and uh, be back on Saturday, uh, as many of us as we can, for Arnie's memorial service. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. We do pray for Lucille. We pray for uh, Bob. Uh, Lord, we ask that you will uh, help them with their particular uh, health needs uh, at this time. And uh, we think of the Holtz and the Vegters, Lord, and uh, pray continue to minister to their needs. And uh, so many other requests that we have that are on our hearts and minds. And Lord, we just thank you for bringing us together this evening. Thank you for your word, for these truths that encourage us, that help us. And may, Lord, we continue to be faithful to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one thing that I forgot to announce earlier, I know there's not a lot of us, but we need to get the room set up for the family meal. So we'll need to put several rows or three or four rows of tables in the 